Well, good morning. If you are a guest here with us, thanks so much for being here with us. My name is Stuart McRae. I have the joy of serving our staff as one of the pastors, and uh, you have joined us as we are in the middle of a six-week series going through Romans chapter 8. So if you'll, if you'll go to Romans chapter 8, we are in week three of a six-week series uh, that we've entitled the, the Bible's Summit. And so... I want to do just a, a brief review, um, just to make sure that we're all on the same page so we can better receive what Paul is writing about, get the context. In verses 1 through 4, Paul emphatically proclaims, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then he explains why that's the case. It is because the power of the Spirit has broken the power of sin as he unites us to Jesus' cross work of canceling sin and breaking its power. And then in verse 4, we read the purpose in all of that is in order that the righteous requirement of the law, namely loving others, would be fulfilled in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is clear that obeying God, loving others, cannot happen by the Spirit. He so wants us to understand that it can only be done uh, by the Spirit, not the flesh, uh, that he goes into verses 5 through 8. He delves into the mindset of the flesh and its inability to obey and please God. Then in verses 9 through 11, Paul gives more implications of the Spirit being in Christians and Christians being in the Spirit. And then we finished last Sunday by looking at verses 12 through 13. In 12 through 13, uh, go with our verses this morning, 14 through 17. In verses 12 through 17, Paul talks about the implications of being indwelt by the Spirit. In 12 through 13, it's those who are indwelt by the Spirit are at odds with their remaining sin. And then in verses 14 through 17, those indwelt by the Spirit are children of God. All right, so let's read our passage. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I think we could summarize uh, these verses up like this. Paul showcases four truths in these verses, four truths about our adoption as children of God to motivate our pursuit of conformity to the family image of God. So four truths. The first is the reality of our adoption in verse 14. Then it's the intimacy from our adoption in 15. There's the witness to our adoption in 16. And then there's the inheritance from our adoption in 17. Before we go into it, just heads up, I'm going to spend a bit more time on the first one. It's the most foundational, uh, and then we'll kind of move along from there. So the first truth about our adoption is the reality of our adoption. This is in verse 14. Now, before we read it, verse 14 starts with the word for, and that tells us that 14 is connected with the previous verse 13. In 13, it was, if by the Spirit you are killing your remaining sin, you will live, and the reason why is verse 14, for or because all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons 
of God. So here's the, Paul, here's the logic. Paul tells us that if these Christians in Rome are progressively killing their remaining sin by the Spirit, they'll live. And that's because the Spirit is leading them to do so. And that gives evidence that they are sons of God. We could kind of put the logic like this. If you are a son of God, then you are led by the Spirit to kill your remaining sin in a progressive way. If you are a son of God, you will be led by the Spirit of God to conform into the family image of God, Jesus Christ. To be led by the Spirit means the Holy Spirit in an ongoing way governs, directs, guides, empowers believers towards sanctification. The, the Christian life after justification, that instantaneous legal act of God where he declares us to be right in his sight by faith, the, the Christian life after justification is sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God and his people together to transform his people into the image of Jesus in their actual lives. We could say verse 14 like this, all who are led by the Spirit of God in sanctification are sons of God. Paul wants to give these Christians assurance, assurance. If, if, if they are killing their sin by the Spirit, it is because they are being led by the Spirit to do so which means they can be assured of their new reality as sons of God. Now, it's interesting. In verse 14, Christians are described as sons of God, and then in verse 15, it is adoption as sons. Now, we've got to remember that Paul is writing to a church that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, both Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles. And, and so, Really, these two groups would have heard these terms a bit different. They would have come up with the same conclusions, but they probably would have, these phrases would have resonated with them a bit differently. For the Jews, sons of God would have probably hit them a bit different than it would have the Gentiles. One of the uh, identifications of Israel in the Old Testament, and Israel made up of both men and women, one of the identifications of Israel in the Old Testament was God's son or sons. And then further, in the wilderness, they are led by God's presence. And so Paul's claim that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God is a new covenant understanding of Israel's sonship. You see, in Jesus' blood, who is the Son of God, in Jesus' blood, believing Jews and Gentiles together are now identified as sons of God if they are led by the indwelt presence of the Spirit of God. So you see, the sons of God, the, the, the Christian Jews would have heard a, a profound description of Israel now being applied to both believing Jews and Gentiles. For the Gentiles, Adoption as sons would have hit them a bit differently. Why is that? Well, Hebrew had, in the Hebrew language, there was no technical term for the practice of adoption. It's not articulated in their laws. And even functionally, it just barely existed. There's probably three or four instances that we might be able to see in the biblical account. 
What's more, the phrase adoption as sons actually translates to one Greek term that refers to the Greco-Roman custom of adoption. Adoption in the Greco-Roman world was a a legal act. Primarily, it was done by rich, well-to-do, socially elite men who had no male offspring. And so they would adopt a son, adopt a male to be their son who would be their heir, assuring that their name, their legacy, their, their fortune would go on. An adopted son had all the rights and privileges that a naturally born son did. Now, here's the spiritual profundity that the Gentiles would have heard. In the Greco-Roman world, females were virtually removed from the system. They themselves could not legally adopt, and they themselves were rarely adopted. Because the usual reason for adoption was to gain an heir, and women were restricted in inheritance rights. Daughters were not heirs in the Greco-Roman culture. But Paul says, listen, here it is. Paul says, in the courts of heaven, God adopts males and females, indeed Jews and Gentiles, and considers them all as sons, thereby unlike the culture around them, bestowing upon everyone to include his daughters all the rights and privileges of being an heir. Listen, sometimes you'll read in your Bible and it'll say brothers and what's intended is brothers and sisters. Here it doesn't mean that. Here it means adoption as sons because it's picking up, Paul's picking up a a cultural reality but applying a spiritual reality on it. Now, before Women were excluded, but in the courts of heaven, God adopts both men and women and makes them both joint heirs. This was insightful from one commentator. Only a few years prior to Paul's letter, the emperor Claudius had adopted 11-year-old Nero. Nero had been then proclaimed across the empire as son of the greatest of the gods, Tiberius Claudius. Paul's audience in Rome, who certainly were both males and females, many of whom probably occupied the social status of slaves, freedmen, and foreigners, would have heard as good news indeed that they were the adoptive sons of the one true God. And then here's maybe the, the, the most profound thing, quite possibly, that the Gentiles would have heard. Again, remember, uh, adoption occurred when uh, a rich man did not have an heir did not have a male offspring, and so he would adopt one to have one. Not so with God. There was no need for God to adopt. He had a son, has a son. In Hebrews 1, it says Jesus is the heir of all things. There was nothing that necessitated God adopting us. There was nothing that he needed to do that for. And yet that he does means that our adoption is totally of grace. If you are led by the Spirit of God and being transformed more and more into the family image of God, Jesus Christ, then be assured that by adopting grace, you are a son of God. G.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, wrote, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways. 
But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Indeed, the truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. In, in verse one of this chapter, we're reminded that the, the judge of the universe and the court of heaven declares that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then in verse 14, it's as if the judge gets off the bench, comes down to where we are, wraps his arms around us and says, come home with me, my child. Just like adoption today, children don't adopt parents. Parents choose and adopt children. And so it is with God the Father. The objective reality of your adoption means that God wanted you. God chose you and God loves you. Brothers and sisters, in your doubt and uncertainty of God's love for you, look away from yourself, from your feelings from your sin, from your circumstances, and, and look to your heavenly Father who in love predestined you, chose you in eternity past for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, as Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says. He did nothing to earn your adoptive reality, and so there's nothing you can do to lose your adoptive reality. You are a child of God because God chose you. Amen. One more thought before we move on. The, the reality of your identity, a child of God, ought to motivate you to pursue conformity into the family image of God. This makes sense. We, we do this too. If you have children, you might say something like, hey, Represent the McCrays well here. Well, that, that's not what McCrays do here. But much better, God says something like this. And this isn't just Paul. Here's what Peter says to motivate us toward obedience. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Your sanctification is a lifelong hall filled with ups and downs, but the trajectory is toward Christ's likeness. That is the family image of God. And your subjective change is evidence of your objective reality of being a child of God. So, are you conforming into the family image? Is there just some measure of change? Are you, are you imperfectly but progressively killing your remaining sin? Can you sense the Spirit's leading, guiding, directing in your life? Those are subjective things, but they point to the objective reality. If that is true, then you are a child of God. 
So this first truth of our adoption is this reality of our adoption. The second truth that Paul showcases is the intimacy from our adoption. This is in verse 15. Let's read that again. For, and Paul's about to give us another reason we're sons of God. For, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Commentator Thomas Schreiner is helpful. He says, the link with the preceding verses then could hardly be stronger. The spirit that has been given to believers is a spirit that liberates from the power of sin, and thus a new obedience is generated in the hearts of believers. In both verses 14 and 15, that believers are children of God is inseparable from the obedience of believers. In verse 14, it is those who are controlled by the spirit who are children of God, and then in verse 15, those who are adopted are those who are not slaves to the power of sin. Paul desperately wants us to understand what kind of adoption we have received. He tells these Christians they did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Again, if you recall in verse 2, Paul, Paul tells us that the power of the spirit has set us free in Christ from the power of sin. They, they've been set free from their enslavement to sin. And so Paul assures them that they did not receive an adoption of slavery to fall back, to, to, to return again to the state they once were. And what of this fear? The term fear carries with it a sense of intimidation where one is unable to be accepted. The, the fear of standing before a holy God knowing that you cannot be accepted by him in and of yourself. Before faith in Christ, only separation existed. Only, only hostility existed. Only, only God's wrath existed between him and you because of who you were and what you did against him. But Paul says in Romans 5, 1 through 2, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Brothers and sisters, you did not receive spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God the Father adopts believers through the Holy Spirit, he adopts his children through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the agent by whom believers experience intimacy with God. And this intimacy is expressed in terms of prayer, intimate communication. We, we cry, Abba, Father. But God did not adopt you and give you his presence in the Spirit to then keep you at arm's Length. God adopted you and desires fellowship with you. And brothers and sisters, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, you have the great privilege now to cry out to God, not as judge, but as your heavenly Father. Through Jesus, you have 
permanent and immediate access to God, your Father. And this intimacy isn't to be theory. It is to be enjoyed and experienced. Through the Spirit, you can come into his presence and sit on his fatherly lap, as it were, and enjoy him. Isn't it amazing? As children of God, we get to engage with the creator of the universe. But as our Father, your Heavenly Father is never too busy for you. His calendar, always open. He's never too easily distracted. He's never bothered by you coming with the same thing over and over. He's always eager and ready to pick up the phone when you call, as it were. But I, but I wonder, brothers and sisters, are you eager to be in fellowship with God? Are you actively engaging with your heavenly Father? If not, why not? Brothers and sisters, if, if you are struggling to fellowship with your Heavenly Father because you have the sneaking suspicion that for some reason He won't presently accept you. I want to remind you, as Paul has reminded us, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to, to go back into thinking that you are not accepted by him. In Christ, you are accepted. Your acceptance with the Father is not based on how, how good your communication is with him right now. I don't know, maybe you have a parent or a friend or whatever type of experience where ah, I haven't, haven't called in a week. It's gonna be an awkward call. Maybe I'll just let that go for another one. Maybe they'll call me. <laughs> Maybe you've blown it. Ah, that's going to be awkward. Let's let time heal all wounds. Time is not why you are accepted before God. And, and neither is your string of putting prayers together. God's acceptance of you is not based on how you are doing or feeling at any given moment. You stand accepted before God now and forever because of Jesus. You have been gifted his righteousness. That is what you stand in. And it's on the basis of Christ that you relate to God, your Father has accepted. So don't delay. Don't, don't, don't wait. Don't put off the phone call another day. Go. Run to him. Yes, maybe you need to repent, but that is a gift of him as well. He is eager to forgive you, to welcome you back into fellowship. Your heavenly father longs to build an intimate and strong relationship with you, his son, his daughter. What's also unifyingly true here is that the way Paul phrases this is that as we 
cry. You see, as we fellowship with our Heavenly Father together in prayer, we gain confidence together of our joint adoption. The second truth Paul showcases about our adoption as children of God is the intimacy from our adoption. The third truth is the witness to our adoption. This is in verse 15. Let's read that again. Or 16, excuse me, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit is not only instrumental in making us God's children, but he also makes us aware makes us aware that we're God's children. Paul says that the Holy Spirit bears witness. That is in an ongoing way. It's not something he does once. In an ongoing way, part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he testifies. He confirms with our spirit, the, the innermost part of who we are, that we are children of God. R Roman law required multiple witnesses to affirm the legalization of adoption. And so here we see that the dual testimony of the Spirit and the believer's Spirit are ample witnesses to God's adoption. But what's more here, God's Word is a witness as well. We are, we are reading God's Word and being affirmed of our adoption. So God's Word is also testifying. I think the question probably, though, for us is how does the Spirit testify? It's good news that he does. But let's, let's receive that assurance by asking how. How does the Holy Spirit testify, bear witness to our adoption? Well, first, we, we need probably no, look no further than what we just talked about. Prayer. Prayer. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children as he moves us to Pray. I mean, just, just as a child comes running to their parents when they are afraid or in need or wanting to show them the new cool fort they made, we too give evidence that we are a child of God when we run to our Heavenly Father with our concerns and our needs and our joys. Prayer testifies to our adoption. Second, we think back to verse 13, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are Adopted as he empowers us to kill our remaining sin. Children of God, progressively and perfectly, but progressively conform to the image of God, Jesus Christ. And so killing our remaining sin, obeying God, transforming more into the family image is a witness to our adoption. Third, pulling from outside this text, the fruit-bearing work of the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're adopted children of God, the fruit of the Spirit. So Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of you or me. And maybe that's, maybe that's obvious, maybe that's one of those things that doesn't quite click until you hear it, but if you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, it is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. If those things are happening in your life in ways that are pleasing to God, it is evidence that the Spirit is at work in you, and therefore, it's a testimony that you are a child of God. Look, and we kind of all know this, right? In the, the midst of things going sideways, we can't just like, I'm gonna be peaceful now. That's not the way it works. Peace that is unshakably trusting in God 
that is pleasing to God is a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit, uh, the Spirit witnesses with our spirit. This is meant to give us great assurance that God has already irreversibly adopted us. His witness should give us courage and confidence to press into who we are, God's children. Spirit bears witness that you're God's children, so we should live and look like God's children. So third truth, the witness to our adoption, and then uh, fourth and finally, the last truth about our adoption as children of God is the inheritance from our adoption. This is in verse 17. Let's read it again. Paul is eager to tell us more about the implications. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As one commentator reminds us, in the ancient world, exclusive shares of an inheritance were often given to the eldest or favored sons. But now... Each member of the new community of faith, whether male or female, Gentile, Jew, Greek, barbarian, slave, free, child or adult, shares equally in the birthright. What's more, Paul tells these Roman Christians that they are fellow heirs with Christ. Paul means to communicate that the reality of being an heir comes through our union with God's Son, Jesus Christ. Children of God are heirs of God. Heirs of God could mean heirs of all that God has promised, and that would be biblically true. The, the Greek grammar gives us a better idea that what Paul is actually saying here is that Christians inherit God himself. In, in the Old Testament, the supreme benefit of the Abrahamic covenant was not inheriting the land, but having God as one's God and being in his presence. In Exodus, after Aaron and God's people craft the idolatrous golden calf, in his anger, God sends a plague. And then God tells them that, yes, he will still give them the land, but he will not go in with them. To that, Moses intercedes with God on behalf of the people. And here's what Moses says. If your presence does not go with us into the land, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished... By this, your presence from all the other people on the face of the earth. Well, in his great grace and mercy, God does go with them. Moses knew that inheriting the land was of no value if God wasn't going to be there. And so listen, brothers and sisters, gaining the, the new heavens and the new earth is, is certainly an inheritance right. But listen, the greatest inheritance gain for God's adopted children is God himself. God is the great treasure. Being with him forever is the ultimate inheritance. We should be able to say with David in Psalm 16:5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. And listen, the first inheritance that we receive 
is the promised Holy Spirit who is the presence of God. I mean, further, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In other words, believers are assured to enjoy God's presence in heaven forever when they die or go home to be with him or when, the, when, when, when Jesus returns. But until that day, they get to enjoy his presence right now, in part through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The great inheritance from our adoption is God himself. Family, does this news thrill you or disappoint you? John Piper asks, if you could have heaven, no sickness, all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Eternal life is not gaining a heaven where God doesn't exist. Eternal life is being with and enjoying God forever. John Piper continues to confront us when, when he says that the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, he says, we've not been converted by the gospel. God himself is the greatest gain of the gospel. And through the spirit of God that indwells us now, we can enjoy his never leaving, never forsaking presence now. So family, by his grace, let us not waste one more minute fooling around with fleeting worldly pleasures or self-satisfying interests, but by his grace, let us enjoy the love, the comfort and presence of our Heavenly Father right now through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting. Paul says there's a condition he says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Christ, in order that, for this purpose, that we may also be glorified with him. I mean, suffering with Christ has always gone part and parcel with being a disciple of Christ. In talking with the disciples in John 15, 20, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, here's a promise, also persecute you. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And what is picking up one's cross other than being willing to suffer, be persecuted, indeed die for Christ? Now, these themes of suffering and glory permeate the rest of chapter eight, so we're not gonna spend long here but let me just say this, brothers and sisters, the, the emphasis, the emphasis with this condition is since 
you are a child of God, an heir of God, co-heir with Christ. You should be eager to share in suffering with Christ, knowing that you will share in the victory of Christ. The temptation might be to think that your suffering is God not being very fatherly. So I, I say this gently, in the mysteries, the mysterious providence of God, your suffering is part of him treating you as a legitimate child. In Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, the, the author, the preacher of Hebrews is speaking to those who are presently experiencing religious persecution, tossed out of their homes, everything gone, and he writes this, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but our Heavenly Father disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So Paul writes in our passage, if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. F.F. Bruce says, the suffering is the indispensable prelude to the glory. And we'll, we'll talk more of suffering and glory in the coming weeks. So, what have we seen? We've seen in these verses, this Paul showcasing these four truths about our adoption as children of God to motivate us to pursue conformity to the family image of God. Being indwelt by the Spirit means believers have a new relation with God. You are a child of God. You have been adopted by him. And God's adopting grace means you are personally wanted by God, the creator of the universe. It means you are loved. And God's adopting grace means you will always be well cared for. Your heavenly father hasn't, hasn't adopted you just to kind of add another one to the family. He's adopted you because he desires to be in relationship with you. He's gifted you the Holy Spirit so that through the Holy Spirit, his presence in you, you can have intimate fellowship with him. But brothers and sisters, be on guard of your own fickle heart. Just as we can interpret 
the closeness of our relationships with each other based on our subjective experiences, we, we can also try to determine our closeness with God based on how we're feeling or doing at any given moment. But let me remind you, you did not earn your adoption. In fact, all that you brought to the adoption proceedings was your sin that made you unlovable. Yet in love, God the Father chose you for adoption. Your identity, child of God, child of the King, has been sealed by the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And now that same adoptive spirit is leading you to pursue conformity into the image of God, Jesus Christ. Let me, let me end with this. I realize in a, this number of folks that there's certainly someone who doesn't have the best of earthly fathers or Families, And I want to say the truth of God's adoption maybe you've lost a good father. The truth of God's adoption should tenderly draw you near and give you comfort and encourage you. God is everything your earthly father should have been, everything you wish he would have been. You have a loving heavenly father, a, a righteous, sympathetic big brother, and a new spiritual family. You are God's child. The spirit, his presence indwells you. You have power for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have preserved for us, your children. We could come to better know you as our Father and us as your children. Know what you've done for us in Christ through the Spirit to claim us as your own and now empower us toward changing into the family image of God. We love you. We thank you. Oh, help us to have these truths resonate in our hearts and minds as we go from here. Would it just thrill us to know these truths and would it cause us to live differently? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.